Okay. Ooh, it's a bit different from like teaching in school. I keep going, oh, you've taught class heaps of times. And it's a part of my brain that's like, no, this is not school. Okay. Um, so pardon if I get a bit shaky. It's actually, it's just adrenaline. It's, you know, performance energy. Um, and I, I actually, I have a, perf- a question to start with. And I know you guys, this is not a question I need you to call out the answer to. Okay. It's a question in your head. Um, I just want you to have it sitting there. So the question is, if somebody said to you, it's a myth, all this stuff you believe about Jesus, it isn't real, what would you say? Now that, as I said, it's a rhetorical question, keep it in here. Um, I actually had that experience while I was on my trip and it's something I'm going to come back to later about how I answered that or rather how I should have maybe answered that. All right, so uh, as you may or may not know, I've just come back from some time overseas, um, part of which included some time in Ireland. Um, and this isn't really a to be sure, to be sure kind of message. I haven't got any of that, uh, that Irish thing. I'm not bringing any of that. Um, but while I was there, I was able to attend um, another vineyard church, the Causeway Vineyard. Now, um, as soon as we entered Northern Ireland, we were driving, we hired a car, we began to notice the flags and you could not miss them. They, they were everywhere. And I sort of got the impression, I went, I, I don't think this is, this is normal. Um, yes, there we go, there's a picture. Eventually I took a picture of it because I was just like, there's really a lot of flags everywhere. Um, and we found out these flags were to commemorate a battle. So this big commemoration of the battle was happening the weekend we were there celebrating this battle. So you might be going, well, what was the battle? Well, from what I, the gist of it from what I got while I was over there, a bit of history. Um, basically, so Protestant England took over Catholic Ireland in the 1600s or so, I'm guessing at the date there. Uh, they sort of sent in settlers and for some reason the Irish inhabitants were not happy about being invaded and uh, ruled over by the English. So there was a lot of and really awful trouble for a long time. Basically the battle that they were celebrating that weekend was um, when the island separated into the Catholic Irish not ruled by the England South and the Protestant with the majority who were a bit more okay about being ruled by the English North. So the battle sort of won the North I guess. Um, As an aside... um, you may or may not be aware that there are a lot of people in the north who were not happy about still being ruled by England and there was a lot of things called the Troubles there for a while which were pretty awful, like it was it was not a safe time actually to go to Northern Ireland which has settled down since, which is why we sort of felt comfortable driving through places like Belfast and things like that. But anyway, back to the flags. Um, so the flags were excessive. It, you started to get the impression it was kind of like the people who, had, who were on the side that had won were kind of rubbing it in the face of the people who had not won. They were not being gracious winners. Um, and it was a really interesting atmosphere to arrive into. And on the Sunday morning at the Causeway Vineyard Church, the sermon actually referenced this. And I think the, the pastor, to his credit, he did it very sensitively. Um, and he ended with saying, you know, love... God's love triumphs all flags, which was, you know, a, it was a wonderful message. Um, now, Kirk asked me to speak today. I guess he wants me to speak about what I got from visiting our vineyard family in Ireland and also, I guess, you know, of the wider church family in Ireland. And the big thing I picked up from Ireland, not just from the flags, but that is part of it, is that the context that we are in is that we are in a battle. Yes. I'm going to I'm just, I don't know, it's like magic PowerPoint. Yes, it happens. Yay, thank you, Neil. Um, so that's what I want to talk to you about today, that we as Christians were in a battle. Now, some of you might be like, 
Yeah, duh, I know I'm in a battle. Have you seen the week I just had? Um, for others, yeah, you might be a bit like me, which is like, I, look, I'm aware of the fact that we're in a battle, but it isn't at the forefront of my mind. Although now that I think about it, that does explain the week I just had. And for others of you, you might be, actually, I wasn't aware that we were in a battle. This might be news to you. So we're all in different places, I suspect, here. But our context as Christians is battle, spiritual warfare. We are soldiers. Now, Karen talked last week about authority. And if you didn't listen to her sermon, if you weren't here, you might have been in jive or you're away. I strongly encourage you to download it on SoundCloud. It was excellent. And I am very much, this is like part two of Karen's sermon. Um, just, you know, going from that. And a book she mentioned I'm also very much indebted to, which is Charles Crafts, I Give You Authority. So you can download it on your iPhone or Kindle or whatever, about 10 bucks. I did, so I recommend that you do too. Um, now, he says, Charles Crafts says, that it is on the battlefield that we assume our authority. And Karen's sermon, as I said, was about authority. So this flows from that. Let's unpack this. Charles Craft, in his book, he talks about the fact that we live in a world under the authority of the enemy. Uh, the Bible is very clear that Satan's purpose, as one of the verses says, is to steal, kill and destroy. Not, I just want to cause you some trouble, but kill. I mean, that really came home to me this week as I was preparing this. He wants to take our lives. He wants to destroy anything that is good in our lives. He wants to steal any happiness you have, any security you have, any love you have. He wants to take it. So that's... That's actually quite serious when we think about that, you know, we're in a battle. Now, Jesus, our leader, is our general in this battle. And it is his enemy that we're challenging when we exercise this authority that Karen talked about. Every time we assert authority, to quote Charles Craft, we are cutting into the domain of the imposter. So, obviously, Satan does not want us to do that. Um, Romans 16.20 establishes, and this is one of those verses that when I read it, I actually went back into my Bible and I went, okay, God put that in yesterday because I've read this passage before and I'm sure it wasn't there. But anyway, it, in, the, in the verse it says, it is God's desire that we press on with Jesus until the enemy is crushed under our feet. Um, and I mean, a lot of the time when I think of being in a spiritual battle, the verses that come to mind are the ones about put on your armour, stand, stand there. Uh, but when I hear crushed, I'm like, I'm hearing that our enemy is to be obliterated, smashed and ground into smithereens, fragments and dust. I like that. That's a new thought for me. That's good. Um, so let's, let's just get some biblical, further biblical context. Does the Bible actually talk about this battle business? Well, yes, it does. In fact, it starts with it. You can get three chapters into the Bible, into Genesis. Satan attacks, humanity falls, and God's reply is, your offspring will crush his head. There's crushing again. Excellent. Um, right at the end of the Bible, so we, you know, from the beginning to the end, Revelation is full of battle references. It focuses on the climax of the spiritual and cosmic conflict introduced in Genesis. So in chapter, I, there's a whole bunch of stuff in Revelation, but I'm just pulling out a couple verses here. Uh, in chapter 12, verse 10, it says, referring to God, now his Messiah, that's Jesus, has shown his authority. There's that word again. For the one who stood before our God and accused our brothers, that's Satan accusing us, saying, bad stuff about us day and night now frankly day and night I need to sleep sometimes it is not fair that he doesn't um, so he um, so he's a pretty relentless enemy um, but here's the good news he has been thrown out of heaven and our brothers that's us won the victory which I think is something we can be encouraged about straight away. We win the victory. Excellent. This is a good battle to be in then. Um, over him by the blood of the lamb. So it's through Jesus that we win. 
and by the truth that they proclaimed. And that's an interesting insight, that some of the fighting in this battle is done by proclaiming truth. Um, They were willing to give up their lives and die. Die. I mean, that's more than talking. As I said, this is a serious battle. Maybe like me, you knew we were in a battle, but I don't know that I always take, you know, we sang it this morning about giving up our lives and because I was obviously aware of what I was talking about, I was like, yeah, ooh, that's, a, that's serious. Now, while not every verse in the Bible is about this interaction, um, there are plenty of glimpses at it. So in Job, it expands on this bit where the devil stands before God and accuses us day and night and we actually get an understanding of why Job is going through the suffering he is. Uh, In Daniel, um, I really love this bit where we get an insight into basically, you know, he's been praying and after however many days an angel comes and says, look, I'm sorry I couldn't be here straight away, but I was fighting the prince of Persia who is the demon who controlled that area. It's like, okay, that's an interesting background to what's going on. Um, In the Gospels, We see Satan offering Jesus authority, kind of like it's bait when he's tempting him. Um, And in John chapter 16, Jesus warns us of all sorts of bad things that are going to happen, saying cheerful things like, the world is going to make you suffer, so be brave. Um, why, Why will the world make us suffer? Well, in John 15, it says, because the world is under the authority of the evil one and hates us because we belong to Jesus. So there is a biblical foundation to say that our context is Christians, is that we're in a battle, and it's not a nice one either. Um, Now, in regards to the battle, I am not saying give your entire attention to the battle. Definitely not. Don't always be thinking about the enemy. Christianity has this wonderful extremes thing going on where we're told, don't worry, be at peace, relax, but also be vigilant, on guard, alert, and pray without ceasing. Now, if you think relaxed vigilance is impossible... Behold, cats. All right. I was trying to think of an image and then I started looking them up on YouTube and I was like, oh, yeah, cats know how to do relaxed vigilance. It's like, I'm relaxed, but if you come near me, I'll scratch you. All right, now I'll go more into this later, but I think the primary thing is you focus on Jesus and the Holy Spirit will give us a heads up. And actually, when I was thinking about that, I went, oh, I love the phrase heads up. It's like I have this image of being in the trenches and a bit like, I don't know, Blackadder, they're sitting around playing cards and then you get told, pop your head up because the enemy's coming. You're given the warning. There's also one further aside, which I would love to unpack further, but I didn't feel that it was the right time here. But one thing Charles Crafts mentions is he says the primary attack area is probably going to be your self-image so that you don't go anywhere near all the untapped talents and gifts that you aren't even aware or I aren't even, I'm not even aware that we have. Because um, he doesn't, Satan doesn't want us to use them to cause trouble to him. It's like we're a soldier, we've got a grenade in our pocket, we've got a bazooka on our shoulder, we are pulling a tank and the enemy has us so focused on our ugly army boots that we don't even know we have weapons. Yeah, that one's for Bren. (laughs) Um, Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm reminded, you're in a battle, you're a Christian, you're in a battle, you've got to fight, all I can think is, I am so tired. I am so tired. Yeah, I've got to fight. I've got to do the battle thing every day. I can't do it. Yeah. This is the thing. It's it's a long war. Uh, We are going to get tired. We have finite bodies with eternal souls in them. Um, and so I wanted, did want to make this point at this juncture that now that we've established our context, that we're in a battle, that it is okay to rest. 
Now, I can link this to Ireland in a really cool way. Um, we spent a couple of weeks in Europe before we went to Ireland, and it actually had been, it was actually a heat wave going on there. While you guys were having snow, apparently, uh, we, were, we were having sunburn issues, and it was surprisingly draining, actually, to be in that heat. And Italy, in its wonderful disorganisation, is a very draining country. Um, getting out of the airport was a drama I'm happy to tell any of you about at some point. It probably will take me as long as it took us just to get through some of the lines. But anyway, um, so when we got to Ireland, we were really ready to rest. And the countryside was green and it was soft and it was raining. And we were excited about the rain because we hadn't seen it for a couple of weeks. And we got to stay at a and b that of all the thousands of B&Bs, and I didn't know it when I picked it, listed by TripAdvisor, this is the second best B&B in the whole world. I was like, no, I don't know what the first one's like. It must be amazing because my bedroom at this B&B is big, was bigger than my dining room and living room that I have in the house that I live in. Um, it looked onto rolling green countryside. Um, there was a bath. It's not a very good picture, but it was like, you know, one end of the room, it just flowed into a bath. Um, my mother's room was surrounded by a rose garden. I mean, it was so good to rest, and when you come to at Sundays on Sundays to church, it is this is actually partly meant to be a place of renewal. This is like where you hang out with other soldiers on leave. This is the field hospital where you know down the front we get patched up. Um, it, I, I get the image of the TV show Mash with all its attendant craziness and crazy people. Um, it's a school, it's an armory, it's a bit like James Bond where you get updated on the strategies in the battle and retooled and you get to practice skills you might need out on the field. Um, there's a bit of a cartoon there and I'm going to use that to have a bit of a drink while you look at it. So yeah, we get some skills we practice here which we then you know, use out on the field. Um, I just thought that was amusing so I thought I'd share it. Um, now, although I do want to disturb your complacency a bit, saying, yeah, look, hey, guys, wake up, we're in a battle. But I also want to encourage you because sometimes I feel very sort of overwhelmed by the fact that every day is a battle and, and that awful things, awful things are happening in the world. And sometimes I look at the direction our society in Australia is taking and I sort of go, oh, gosh. But I want to remind you guys, it is not as bad as we fear. This is the good news. He is a little devil. I mean, Jesus died on the cross and set us free from sins and the devil's plan for us. It's good news. And in fact, if you haven't accepted Jesus into your heart, but you're sorry and you want Jesus to take your sins, you can do that at any time. Uh, the Bible says, if you say it with your mouth and believe it with your heart, you will be saved. Although I counsel you, in the light of what I'm saying, take it seriously, because the enemy does. And as I've pointed out, he is not playing nice. But remember, on the other hand... We win. The victory is Jesus. Revelation makes that indisputably clear. And there's this beautiful thing that the, the mystic St. Julian says, but all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. That just, oh, yeah, it feels good to think that. So that even though sometimes we think our world is getting worse, in some ways it's getting better. Um, Kirk actually posted a something on Facebook, where it talks about that poverty and violence statistically worldwide are gradually declining. And that's hugely encouraging. Uh, what's also encouraging to think is that there are more Christians today than there have ever been. There's one billion of us. 
you know. We constantly have this, you know, we sort of feel like we're under attack all the time, but we, we can be encouraged. Um, in doing a bit of research, um, I discovered that an Irish pastor in the 1700s, his name was Swift. He was the guy who wrote Gulliver's Travels, for any of you who you may have heard of that. Um, that's the one with sort of his big giant little people thing. Uh, he wrote about, in the 1700s, about the abolition of Christianity, Christianity, like trying to get rid of it, by people who are trying to get rid of it. Well, it's 2015 and they haven't got rid of it yet. Um, I mean, they're trying, but, you know, it's a long war that we're in. And in saying it's not as bad as we fear, I want to return your thoughts to Ireland for a moment. So, as I said, I got to go to a vineyard church there, Causeway Vineyard, and I got to meet Mark Marks, um, who is the founder of Healing on the Streets that we've done here. Uh, you know, you're all going, what I put up there, yeah. Um, now, in his book, um, Stepping into the Impossible, he recounts that the pastors of the church felt that God told them, if we go after the lost, he will look after the church. Uh, while I was there, I actually got the chance to sort of talk quite a while with um, some of the people there, and this was repeated to me by a member of the team there. And they confirmed to me that more than 3,000 people have come to faith in Jesus since then. That's a huge number. And this is a church in a tin shed. We're a church in a tin shed. I think we can be encouraged by that. So, we've established we're in a battle, it's okay to rest, and there's much to be encouraged by. Now, Mark spoke that night at the church, and um, one of the stories he told was actually, it was just as an aside. It's interesting what sticks with you after a sermon, who knows what will stick with you after this. But what stuck with me, he told this little side story, and he, it was about, these witches were speaking about the huge effort it took them to bind a demon up in a tree, only to have it immediately loosed as a Christian walked past. And I was just like, oh, interesting. Our presence, like just being present, has power and authority, and we don't even know it. Like, this is something I want to empower you with. If you're thinking, okay, I'm on a battlefield, be encouraged that your presence has power that you don't even know about. Uh, Charles Craft, he says, We are inseparable from our spiritual authority. It is recognised by God and by the enemy world as flowing from our very beings. And I sort of thought, well, yeah, because that's where God, the Holy Spirit, resides. And God works through us often despite ourselves. So, okay, he's working even when we're not aware of it. And what I want to explore just for a little bit now is this notion that we are salt in the world by our presence in it. Okay, so there's this great series of books by a writer called Francine Rivers. It's called The Mark of the Lion. I know some of you have read it. Uh, it's great. It's set in Rome around 65 AD, and one of the relationships in the story is about uh, a Christian servant who looks after her young Roman mistress. Now, the young Roman, she's very much like people of our day. She's very much into experimenting with everything, pushing every boundary she can get. And she finds the presence of her servant, alternately, who has obviously, he's a Christian servant, so she has God in her, alternately very, very comforting, you know, but also somewhat, somewhat discomforting and very uncomfortable. And eventually she actually removes the servant from her presence permanently. And Rivers notes, she expresses this beautifully at this point, as the servant's presence was withdrawn, gone too was that salt that had kept her, the mistress, from complete corruption. Now, when Jesus talked about our presence in this world being salt, he was referring to its properties of preservation. 
Now, I actually looked up the word corruption because I wasn't sure if everyone would actually get what I meant by that. And I found it really interesting. And because I'm an English teacher, we're going to look at the definition. Um, so we, as salt, we halt corruption. So corruption is to, to mar, bribe and destroy, which immediately made me think of um, that verse, the devil comes to steal, kill and destroy. So that's what our presence halts. Um, and let's, let's go a bit more deeply into this definition. Um, so salt, us, we halt the process of decay or putrefaction. Now, if you're not sure what that is, here is an image of apples putrefying. Note how they're rotting, they're spoiling, they've gone bad. That's what we halt in this world. Um, the, corruption has a couple aspects to its definition. So it's also defined as when words change to erroneous, which means wrong, or debased, and debased means to lose value, virtue, or become shameful. So it becomes changes to an erroneous or debased meaning. So our language is definitely a contested sphere. It's a battlefield right now. It is a place where we can see meaning changing today. Uh, the Bible says that there will come a time when people call right wrong and wrong right. And we're, I think we're definitely living in that time. Um, Back to Ireland. Well, recently they voted, as you may have heard, for the meaning of the word marriage as it has stood since the beginning of creation established by God to change that meaning to change in their country. Now, when you change the meaning of a word, you change a whole bunch of things. Um, you may not be aware, but just this week, the Australian Labor Party basically voted to remove politicians from their ranks who don't agree with that new definition as defined by Ireland. So words are corrupting the world around us. Um, there's some interesting synonyms for corruption in language, and these are all things that our presence um, as salt halts. Things like um, manipulation, degradation, abuse, subversion. And it also notes down the bottom that corruption is a process by which a computer program becomes debased. It doesn't work properly by alteration and introduction of errors. So our presence makes it harder for error to come in. Our presence makes things work like they're supposed to work. Um, furthermore, corruption, I know it's so, so much in this definition, pages of it. Uh, corruption is the action or effect, and this one make, kind of makes me sad, of making someone or something morally depraved. Now, the synonym for this type of corruption is sin. I think we're all familiar with that one. Uh, other words like perversion, indecency, degeneracy, wickedness, evil. Now, today, things that were once called sin, perversion, indecent are celebrated and it is mandated by law that they're taught to junior primary school students. And I'm a teacher and I know that for a fact. And that breaks my heart. Um, and it's a very difficult line for Christian teachers to walk, particularly in the state system, at least in the private system where we have, we have some help there. Now, a final definition for corruption is dishonest conduct. So double dealing, deception. Um, our presence makes it harder for the devil to deceive people and draw them down to hell. It is huge. I know I went a long time into that definition, but our presence does a huge amount. And to me, in one sense, it actually takes a bit of the weight off. Just thinking, simply being a Christian, just existing as a Christian, that does a whole bunch of stuff a lot of the time that I'm not even aware of. So although we have to, yes, we do have to be active fighting in this battle, uh, there's a lot that it does. But the thing is, while salt preserves for a while, it preserves. It can't stop the rot completely. So we can't just be bystanders. We do need to be active. We need to be praying, uh, declaring the truth and the gospel. We need to be commanding healing. 
Uh, Ireland's changed to the meaning of the word marriage. And I, I don't want to speak in judgment here because I don't know the whole history of, you know, the process that that country has gone through. But I am guessing that it is a reflection of a long process over centuries where Christians probably haven't been active enough. Um, some signs of this, um, while I was visiting the Causeway Coast, I got to ramble over the Giant's Causeway, which I've always wanted to see since I was a little kid because it's a geological monument that shows evidence of the worldwide flood. Uh, and I find all that stuff really interesting. But while you're there, it's actually, it's kind of like shoved in your face. The evolutionary dog dogma is, you know, all the tourist paraphernalia, you cannot avoid it. Um, so I was like, oh, okay, you know, there's, there's no little flag waving saying, well, actually God says. Um, another example, um, in Trinity College in Dublin, and Trinity, of course, is named for God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I went to see the Book of Kells, which I'd been really excited about seeing. Now, the Book of Kells, if you're not familiar with it, is the four Gospels, um, and in 384 AD, um, they were intricately and meaningfully decorated by these gifted monks, craftsmen and artists. Um, it's a wonderful exhibition, you know, it's beautifully, beautifully set up. But as an unavoidable part of the exhibition, after seeing, you know, I'm there going, oh, the monks, they've worshipped God, they've tried to glorify him, using the gifts he's given them, you go like, oh. You go upstairs and you are confronted immediately with a huge display, biblical myths. And it's placed next to an equal with a whole bunch of other myths that we probably would regard as actual myths, like Arthurian myths. And, you know, there's a little display of, you know, Bibles, ancient, beautifully crafted. And in amongst them is the book His Dark Materials. Now, if you're not familiar with that, this is a book written by someone who is an avowed enemy of God. He's unashamed about it. And in his book, he deliberately tries to introduce children to possession by demons. Now, I personally, I'm not stupid. I think somebody was very deliberate in the placement of that whole exhibition, those two right next to each other in that book there. After seeing the word of God glorified, and for me, uh, how I worship God is very much through the word, to then be confronted with a huge lie. I felt like I'd been slapped in the face. Um, it, was, it was very upsetting for me. And the thing is, I suspect it could not have occurred. Like this long process where Trinity College, named to honour God, gradually became this place where God was openly is openly despised. I don't think it could have occurred if Christians had, you know, just been bystanders at times and just let stuff slide. You know, we're nice people, we'll let it go. For me, this was the most distressing moment in my trip. I, um, I cried as once I got out into the street. I was just walking down the road crying. Um, I'm going to have a drink at this point because there's a little note for me that says, have a drink here because you'll probably need one, which I do. In class, I can just do this all the time. I just pop a drink. No one minds. All right. Um, and I also was sad for us in Australia because I could see what's happening in Ireland is happening here. Um, and I'm going to expand on a facet of this. Uh, back to Charles Craft, that guy who wrote um, uh, I Give You Authority. He explains that the devil's authority in any given situation correlates with the amount of human cooperation. And he gives an example. He talks about um, the Israelites in Egypt. They were protected until an Egyptian king came along who knew nothing of Joseph, and he laid aside their protection. Now, Satan had hated the Israelites the whole time, but when it was the authority of the country's ruler, an authority that God takes seriously, it protected them. And as soon as that protection was removed, the enemy was free to strike and the people were terribly oppressed. If the devil's authority is affected by human authority, then we need to take more interest in the laws that rule us. Because God takes that authority seriously, 
Satan takes that authority seriously. And I think, I personally think, it's a personal opinion, but I think we have been lied to for too long that politics and religion shouldn't mix. As Christians, politics, the place where the laws are made that have authority over us, where they're decided, that is something we should take responsibility. We have a responsibility to pay attention to that. We, we need to keep them from corruption. And you know, just think back to that definition from being misinterpreted, from being you know, changed and marred and degraded. Because we're not just doing that for our benefit. We are protecting society as a whole when we do that. And I was, when I was writing this, I'm thinking, oh, you're preaching a bit, Tavia. And then I went, oh, good, I'm supposed to be. <laughs> I finally got permission to do preaching, yay. Um, (laughs) It's a light moment there. Um, If we don't exercise our authority, the laws will change and corrupt and they will have authority over us. And they already do in primary schools and things, in our workplaces. Because we're on a battlefield whether we like it or not. We don't have a choice about it. Now, I know I'm quoting Charles Craft a lot, but he expresses things beautifully and it's a bit of a long quote here I want to read out to you. He says... Soldiers who are on the battlefield but who are not fighting cannot expect to win. And this is one reason why so many Christians are living defeated lives. Such inactive soldiers do, however, win occasionally when they do the right thing unconsciously. Fortunately, some who ignore the enemy do win at least some of the battles by following certain spiritual rules, even though they know nothing of the impact impact of their behaviour in the spirit world. When they love God with all their heart, soul and mind and their neighbours as themselves, Christians wage spiritual warfare whether they know it or not. So as I said, this is how we preserve in the world, you know, be encouraged. Likewise, when they pray, forgive, worship, spend time in God's word and do deeds of mercy. But although occasional battles may be won even by bystanders, it takes active soldiers to win the war. And God has called us to be active soldiers, to be praying in spiritual warfare, to be speaking the truth of the gospel, to be stepping out and healing the sick. As I said already, if we don't assert our authority over Satan, he'll assert his authority over us. Don't worry though, because I sort of hear that and I go, ah, Satan, ah, God in us, the Holy Spirit in us has more, infinitely more authority and power than the whole satanic kingdom. We need to remember that. And yeah, the battle is hard and tiring. Getting up every day going, okay, I'm in a battlefield. You know, this is not a safe place. It's dangerous. You can get hurt. You can even get killed. And yes, yeah, some days we will lose. But I would rather, and I'm again using Charles Craft's words here, I would rather lose while fighting than while running away or hiding or just simply standing there. Besides, often we win. When you fight, sometimes you win. Now, Karen's sermon last week reminded me to assert my authority again as I returned to the classroom because I had to teach last week. And I'm actually not talking about authority over my students. I'm very fortunate. I have some just wonderful students. Um, I pray over the room before I let the kids in and it makes a noticeable difference. People talk, people comment. Um, Karen also talked about praying for disputing neighbours and while I was typing some of this, I could hear my neighbours arguing and I thought, well, you know, give it a go. And so I prayed for peace for them and they stopped arguing. Okay. Um, the spirit world is always listening. But, and this is the final major aspect in what I want to unpack, it is important that we fight this battle and assert our authority in wisdom and in love. And I've got a practical example from my time in Ireland. Because while I was standing over the Book of Kells, that beautifully illustrated gospel, an American couple, um, they loudly were talking to each other. Unfortunately, 
while you're overseas. Sometimes Americans can be really loud. Uh, so it was a lot of that. But they were, they were uh, you know, talking together and like, oh, well, you can obviously see as you look at the book of Kells. Obviously, you know, all the hand copying, this is how all the errors crept into the Bible. You know what I mean? And obviously it was made up anyway. You know, hundreds of years of errors of something that was made up. And there's other people in the room. You know, it's a really dark room because it's a really important manuscript and everyone sort of, everyone heard this. And into the silence that spoke, followed, I spoke. And I will be, I will, I've repented of this because I did not speak in enough wisdom or in enough love. Nowhere near enough. Um, and, you know, they had a different point of view to me and they expressed their point of view back and it was not a happy exchange. It wasn't, it wasn't terrible, but it, I know that I needed more love in it. Um, and when we got upstairs, they were positively gleeful. Oh, yeah, they, they really tried to point my eye to the myths. Um, it was... It was pretty horrid. Um, that was another reason why I was crying as I walked out. Um, but I am glad I spoke because the thing was, they were saying something that wasn't true. It wasn't accurate. And I felt it was important that that lie, that deception, didn't sink into the minds of all the other people in the room who no doubt in their lives have heard plenty of other lies and deception already. Especially, I didn't want them you know, to have that deception while they were standing over the very words of God. You know, they're looking at it, taking it in. Because it's a battle and I don't want to be a bystander. But as I thought afterwards, I went, how do I do this battle? How do I fight this battle? In which we do have authority with wisdom. You know, what are the words I should have said? And with love. Because they're not the enemy. The enemy's the enemy. And just like in Sunday school and jive up and jive, the answer is Jesus. It comes down to spending time with Jesus, intimacy with him. Because it isn't about the power and isn't about the authority. It isn't even about the battle. It's all about Jesus. The songs we sang this morning beautifully, you know, brought that. I was just like, yes, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Um, he is our focus. So how do we have this intimacy with Jesus? Well, we read the Bible and we read the Bible and we read the Bible. And the reason I'm repeating it is because I need to get into my skull and not just yours. Um, we need to spend time with him in prayer just to sit in his presence and to practice listening um, to what he actually wants us to do with the authority. It's all very well to have authority, but we need to know what to do with it. Uh, John 16, 12 says, the spirit will give us wisdom as he leads us into all truth. Uh, I try, I don't do it all the time, but I do actually try to have a pen and paper handy while I'm praying um, just to jot down what I think the spirit is saying. So what have I got? I've got reading the Bible, praying to Jesus, sitting in his presence, listening to what he's saying. I think wisdom also comes from consulting with others who hear God's voice. Uh, and I'm not just talking about live people. Um, you can talk, you know, you can engage with what current and past Christians have said through the books that they've got. And the, through the internet, we can download them really easily. Um, I also think that it is wise to be obedient. Jesus said... Those who believe in me will do what I do. And yes, he is talking about doing what he did in terms of miracles and things like that. But I think he is also talking about obedience as well as having, you know, that authority. Um, and in fact, I think our faithfulness in small things matters because the parable of talents makes it clear that as we are faithful in those small things, so our authority, more authority is given to us. Now, sometimes we assert our authority and as believers and nothing seems to change. Um, 
I thought about this a lot and I, the conclusion I keep coming back to, and this is not just something I've thought about in the past week and months, but you know, I just think about a lot, is that it's intimacy with Jesus. It's that relationship with Jesus that is the, the powerhouse behind the authority. And that is, as I've just said, it's through reading the Bible, it's through sitting with him, praying, listening, wisdom from others, doing what he said. All of that stuff is where we gain the power that backs up that authority. Um, because after all, he is divine as, um, oh, who's the singer? He said, he is divine and we are the branch. Um, we can't do anything without Jesus. Keith Green, thank you. I knew, I knew someone here would know. Um, we can't do anything without Jesus. From him comes everything that is necessary, including the wisdom and the power and the love. Uh, Charles Craft points out that Jesus, whenever people said, you know, show us your power, he, he wouldn't do miracles for them. But over and over, if somebody came to him who, you know, who moved his, his heart was moved over and over. He was filled with pity whenever people came with a need. Um, his power was always wrapped in love. And so in the same way, when we spend time with Jesus, so we will be motivated like comp- by compassion the way he was. Um, and as I said before, there's one other thing. I think in the battle it is important to be wise, to be vigilant and alert, on guard, as the word says, for the devil's schemes, whilst at the same time relaxing completely in the presence of Jesus. So relax, be vigilant. Um, and I actually popped this in yesterday. Um, my sister, you may or may not know, is a pastor's wife, and she got the chance to go and see a film that's coming up called War Room, and she said, oh, what you're talking about, it's exactly what this film is about. Um, apparently this film, War Room, that's coming out in August at Event Cinemas is about, um, it's focused on the power of prayer, and as a drama teacher, I'm very aware that, you know, we can listen to a sermon, but it sort of might just flow out of our brain, but sometimes there's something about drama that helps us learn stuff and connects with our brains in a different way. So uh, I just thought I'd mention it um, because I just felt it was timely that my sister mentioned it at that point. I'm certainly looking forward to going and seeing it because Kiri said it was really good. Okay, so to end. Um, I'm encouraged when I think of the adventure, the battle as an adventure where our presence makes a difference. As Sherlock Holmes says, the game is on. We are official companions of the king and I volunteer as tribute. No, (laughs) I just had to put some, I went to Madame Tussauds so I thought I'd put that picture up. I have plenty more pictures like that. Um, So to answer the question I asked at the start, to those like the people at Trinity College who declare, this is all a myth, you're a fool for believing it, I think I would answer, as Lewis, C.S. Lewis, and as Tolkien did, that it is a true myth. It has all the wonderful and all the dangerous aspects of a fairy tale. Fairy tales are dangerous, including the happy ending. And even better... It's real, it's true, it actually happened and in fact it's happening right around us all now in the battle. Because the next day in Dublin, after going to Trinity College, I went to the Chester Beatty Library and I saw with my own eyes parchments containing copies of the Gospels and of letters from Paul, copies written in 150 AD. So in 150 AD, it's entirely possible the scribes who copied those parchments could have copied directly from John or Paul's original letters. That's cool. Because that's the same, they've, they've looked at them and it's the same gospel and same letters in those as I can pick up and read in my iPhone. It's the same Bible. It hasn't corrupted. It has not changed. And it's not a myth. And the battle that we're fighting in isn't a myth either. So that's, uh, that's my sermon for you today.